You ready to enjoy the word? I so appreciated Clint's uh, prayer. Use Tim's mouth. Yeah, that's exactly how this needs to go. Just use my mouth. You, you do the talking, Lord, but just make my mouth the vehicle for that. So, hey, let's take our Bibles. Let's head for the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4 this morning. 1 Peter, chapter 4. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Ryan can supply you with one in case that's that you got out of the house without yours. There's a little note page in your bulletin. Uh, please grab that if you wouldn't mind. And as you're heading in that direction, 1 Peter 4, church family, one of the things that you may not know, maybe you do know, but maybe you don't know about me is that I am an avid fan of audiobooks. I've had a standing subscription to an audio book service for, wow, man, I don't know, a long time, several years. And I do so much reading and studying as a part of my role as the primary teaching pastor here at IBC that honestly the last thing I want to do when I go home in the evening is read some more. But I love learning new things and escaping into other worlds and times and in the lives of other people. So audiobooks are perfect. I can, I can download a book onto my phone and I can read quote unquote, almost any time and anywhere that I want without actually reading. It's great. And what I like to read, if you didn't know this, is nonfiction. I'm not a fiction guy. I do nonfiction, stories about stuff that really happened. Stories of epic survival, high-risk adventure, daring exploration, search and rescue. Are you detecting a theme here? Life and death struggles that leave me saying when I'm done reading, wow, that really happened? Wow, amazing. And I read these kinds of books because they hold my interest all the way through, and I learn things as I read. And that's not to say that you can't learn from a nonfiction book, because I think you can, but knowing that something really happened, well, that, that works for me. And so, as you might guess, because this is my genre of choice, I frequently end up listening to books that involve warriors and warfare, ancient and modern. So, I'm reading about Alexander the Great, uh, the Roman Legion, the Crusades, Napoleon, the Civil War, and all the way up through modern warriors in Fallujah or Mosul or in the Pesh Valley of Pakistan, Because in the crucible of war, people are plunged into real, adrenaline-pumping, no-fluff, no-joke, edge-of-the-seat, life-and-death battles. They happen in war. They happen on a battlefield. And I learn a lot as I read slash listen to these kinds of stories. Now, I share this with you this morning because in my reading, I can't tell you how many times that I have been impressed upon by the the, the fact that it is super, super important that a soldier be well prepared before they join the battle, before they engage in the fight, whether the sword is drawn or the bullets are flying, you've got to be prepared for the fight. An unprepared soldier, I have learned from all of my reading, an unprepared soldier is a dead soldier. 
The soldier's preparation is extensive. It's physical, it's psychological, it's logistical, it's informational, and it's intensely practical as each soldier meticulously outfits himself for the fight. Right clothes, footgear, weapons, ammunition, body armor, you name it, a well-prepared soldier has the advantage. An unprepared soldier dies. Now, Again, why would I share that with you? You're a Christian. You've been a Christian for a while. If that is true, then you know, fellow Christian, that the Bible numerous times likens the Christian life to a what? A battle. A war. A fight. A lifelong struggle with a spiritual enemy, continual firefights that are real, no fluff, no joke battles where the sole goal and aim of our enemy is to take you and me not just down, but out to remove us. Would you remember these words from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the what, church family? The whole armor of God. Does that sound like warfare talk? It does. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, we do not war against against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual war. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Armor yourself up so that you can win the fight. Or what about 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 and 4? You might know these words as well. For though we walk in the flesh, we, do, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to do what? Destroy spiritual strongholds. We're in a war. We're in a fight. And Peter, whose book we are now studying together, where your Bible is open right now, has reminded us about this war Back when we were studying in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, what? Wage war against your soul. In chapter 5, where we're going to be sometime here in the future, he says to us, Be sober-minded, be watchful, brothers and sisters. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to what? To eat up, to destroy. We're in a war. Verse 12 of chapter 4, we're going to be here in a couple of weeks. Peter will say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Christian, don't be surprised when it happens that you have to fight because you are already in a what? You're in a battle. You're in a war right now. Don't be surprised when the battle is actually joined. And church family today, 
It is warfare thinking that sets the tone for this next section of Peter's letter that we come to in our ongoing study of this book. We entered into this book a number of months ago, and we've been enjoying it together, and we're today now up to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We took a pause to celebrate the glorious truth of our Savior's resurrection, but now we're back. And Peter writes, beginning in verse 1, follow along, we'll put it up on the screen, but follow along in your Bible or on your phone, chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered or died in the flesh, what are the next two words? Arm yourselves. That's warfare talk. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We're going to stop right there. Now, if you are like me, and you haven't had the time here in First Peter that I've had. But if you're like me, you read this particular section. And there are a few places that leave you kind of just going, huh? And you reread the verse and, and, and you scratch your head and you say, hmm, what does that mean? Hopefully, with a little bit of effort on our part this morning, we can replace some of those and and what does that mean with the truth of God's word together? That's my prayer, is that we will actually get it. We won't be going, huh, by the time we're done this morning. Now, in order for that to happen, church family, honestly, I need to ask a favor of you today. This is not an easy section. Clint and I were talking about this this morning, and, and, and he said, man, this is, not a, this is not an easy part of the book. And he's absolutely right. And so I need to ask a favor of you, I need to ask you to be focused. Really dial in here for the next few minutes together or you're going to miss it. If you take a little mental vacation while I'm, while God is using my mouth, <laughs> you're going to miss some, some really cool stuff. So, so stay in it all the way here. And we also need to really be diligent to, to set the context for these six verses that we're hanging out in, or we're going to miss that as well. These verses aren't just out there floating. They, they fit into a specific part of a book. They're part of a larger context. And if we miss that, we're going to miss what, what the Holy Spirit wants for us. So we're going to work hard together. So context, let's think about that. Remember that Peter is writing to Christians who are enduring, in this moment, intense persecution because they have determined to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They've dared to step out of their own pagan idol-worshiping culture, swear allegiance to the one true God, and give themselves in faith to his son Jesus, believing that his death opens up a personal relationship with God and a sinner, that, that his death pays a sin debt 
that frees them to know a relationship with God. And for this, for their faith in Jesus, they are being persecuted intensely, unrelentingly. They've become exiles in their own culture. In fact, that's one of Peter's words. It's why we titled the series Exiles, because that's the word Peter uses for these Christians who have been really abandoned by their culture and rejected by their culture. Living for Jesus in a world that doesn't has painted, in many ways, a large bullseye on the chest of these first century believers, and they have become the target of every form of persecution up to and including death for Jesus' sake. So Peter has heard about these Christians living in Asia Minor, and he writes this letter to encourage them and equip them for the spiritual battle, the fight that they are in. And he says at the very end of his letter, I'm writing this letter so you won't give up, so that you won't quit, you won't retreat, you won't run away, but you will stand firm to the very end. So we know why he wrote. Peter's thinking warfare thoughts then. There's a spiritual battle going on. And how do we know he's thinking that way? Well, back to verse 1 of chapter 4. Look again at that verse. Since therefore Christ died in the flesh, what? Arm yourselves. Peter actually snatches up a military term of his day, which refers to a soldier putting on weapons, putting on the armor for the fight. Equip yourselves, brothers and sisters. Take up your weapons. The battle is on. Arm yourselves. And then Peter, spirit-directed, supplies these, these battling Christians with no less than five practical pieces of spiritual armor for the battle that they're in. And he, he supplies these in these six verses. What are these five pieces of armor for the fight? Well, they're on your little note page, but let's take up the first one. And you see it there. The first piece of armor for the fight, think the way that Jesus thinks. Think the way Jesus thinks. Since therefore Christ suffered, that word suffered there means died. Since therefore Jesus died in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Think the way Jesus was thinking when he died. Wow, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? That's an interesting challenge. Now, whenever as a Bible student we see the word therefore... On our Bible page, we always want to ask a question. What's the question? What's the therefore, therefore, right? You bet. And what this word always does is it points the reader backwards. Backwards to something that was just stated, something that was just made known or or spoken. And in this case, Peter points us back into the last part of chapter 3 where he was talking about Jesus' death. And we've been separated now from the study for a few weeks, so I wouldn't expect you to remember this, but let's go back in to the end of chapter 3 in verse 18. Do you remember this? When we were at that place, Peter says, For Christ also suffered or died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. That is one of the great verses of Scripture right there, 318. That's worth memorizing that verse. But Peter's talking about the death of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, the last perfect, totally sufficient payment price for sin. He died our death and satisfied God's holiness 
with, with the cross. He died on a cross. And then he rose from the dead. And he wraps the thought up in verse 22, the end verse of the chapter. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, Peter says, Jesus endured the greatest horror, anguish, brutality, suffering, pain, and abandonment that the universe will ever know in order to realize the greatest triumph and victory that the universe will ever know. There was Jesus being murdered on a cross, and yet by that death, he was triumphing over sin. He was triumphing over Satan. He was triumphing over demons. He was triumphing over death. He was triumphing over hell. He even triumph, triumphed over the, the holy judgment of God, satisfying it by his sacrifice. He suffered and he died, always thinking, never doubting, the end of all of this suffering is victorious triumph. That's how he was thinking. Seated now at the right hand of the Father with everything bowing in subjection to him, he was thinking that the greatest persecution and pain ever endured in the history of the universe or ever will be was actually the, the way to the greatest victory, the greatest triumph of all. How do we know that, Peter, that, that Jesus was thinking this way? Well, how about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3? Check this out. Look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him did what? Endured the cross. He was thinking a certain way even as he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Think about what Jesus was thinking about when he died for you. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. This is Peter. Peter's, Peter's thought. Arm yourselves for the battle. Think the way that Jesus was thinking. No matter how difficult the hostility, no matter how severe the persecution, understand that what may be the most difficult time in your life, Christian, Death because of your love for Jesus is but the prelude to the most triumphant moment in your life. You follow him? Are you following his train of thought? Since therefore Christ died in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. For whoever has died in the flesh has ceased from sin. Brothers and sisters, here's where I need you to, to really dial in with me. You, you, you don't want to miss this because this is huge. We may need this truth in verse 1 someday, even though in this moment we might not think so. We're not facing death right now for loving Jesus. We're not even facing the possibility of imprisonment. It's pretty easy to be a Christian for us right now. So we're, we may not be thinking that, wow, I need to know this because death might be in my future for Jesus' sake. But the people that Peter's writing to, they're facing death. This is very real for them. How do you arm yourself when you're facing death for Jesus' sake? Peter says, 
think the way Jesus thinks. Jesus knew his death would put an end to sin's rule, sin's power, sin's claim. He triumphed over sin by his death. Peter says, faithful follower of Jesus, should death for Jesus' sake be in your future? If God calls you to that, you must remember that when you are killed, your war with sin is over. And there ought to be a huge amen come out of that. What looks like the worst possible thing that could happen to you, your death, is actually the greatest thing that could happen to you. It's the best thing that could happen to you because you are done with sin forever. Yeah, there you go. You have ceased from sinning. That's what Peter says in verse 1. You've ceased from sinning. And by the way, that word ceased is in the perfect tense, which means that's a permanent condition forever and ever and ever. It never will change. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. You are done with sin forever when you die. Let me ask you this, Christian. What is the... What is the greatest battle that you wage in your life right now? What is that battle? It's a battle with sin, isn't it? Don't you war with sin every day? It's the greatest battle I fight in my life every day. I fight this battle. I fight it every single day, multiple times a day, and so do you. And we do so for our whole life, even though we're Christians, right? Just because you know Jesus doesn't mean you stop fighting sin. In fact, you fight sin more, don't you? More than ever when you give your life to Jesus. You didn't care about sin so much when you didn't know Jesus. As long as we're in these bodies, the Bible tells us that this battle that we have known our whole life, this war with sin, it continues. As long as we're in these bodies... The Apostle Paul laid it out so well for us. Romans chapter 7. He was so honest. His battle is our battle. Listen to what he says. Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Does that sound familiar? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It wars within me. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think Paul understood it, didn't he? He understood perfectly what what, what Peter's calling for. In fact, he'll say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, while he's in prison for Jesus' sake, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. It's not a loss. The battle's over. I'm done with sin. I don't have to fight that anymore. To live in Christ, oh, that's, that's wonderful. But to die, <laughs> I get to be with Jesus and I'm done with fighting sin. And we know that, that Paul thought this way. Do you remember his words to a young pastor? 2 Timothy 4.18. Just before Paul's going to be beheaded for his love of Jesus, he writes a letter, and here's what he says. 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. He's about to rescue me. 
from every evil deed. Now, that could be the evil deeds of wicked men who are about to kill him. It could also be a reference, and I believe it is, to his own war with sin. He's about to rescue me and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So here was a Christian man who did not view death as in Jesus as a bad thing, but as a great thing, a triumphant thing, a huge victory. Paul longed to be done with sin forever, and, and Peter says, arm yourself with that kind of thinking. Now, if you and I are armed against persecution with a readiness and even an excitement about dying because we know what's coming, the victory that will be ours, then we've armed ourselves with the same kind of thinking that Jesus was thinking when he died on the cross. Are you following Peter's argument here? Say yes, church, because I need to know this, okay? He died for the joy that was set before him. He knew what it would accomplish. He understood the triumph in it, and so must we. What Peter says is, if they kill you, you will cease from sinning. You're done with the battle. The worst that our persecutors can do to us is kill us, and if they kill us, the battle is over. We have won. Does that excite you? If we're armed with with that thinking, we're not going to recant. We're not going to cave in. We're not going to give up. We're not going to quit when the, the heat is on. We have courage and boldness and confidence and strength in the day of trial and difficulty and persecution, any threat, even death, because this is how we're thinking. If we're willing to die knowing our war with sin is done, then we have just taken away the greatest weapon that a persecutor has against a Christian, and that is the threat of death. You realize this? If if, if death is no threat to you, it's no weapon for your enemy. How cool is that? Arm yourself with that. So, So let's carry this out. Brothers and sisters, if it ever happens that you are going to be burned at the stake, if it ever happens that you will be crucified upside down as Peter was or sent to the gallows or be beheaded like Paul was or be starved to death or put before a firing squad or whatever else might be devised to take your life for Jesus' sake, Because you've loved Jesus and now loving Jesus is a capital crime. As absurd as that may seem in this moment as we sit comfortably here in a church in the mountains. If it should ever happen that your life is on the line for loving Jesus. Armed with Jesus' way of thinking. May you remember to say to your persecutor, your executioner. That they are doing you an immense favor. And you are most grateful to them for this generous gift that you are about to give. For in killing you, they are bringing you to the place that you most want to be with Jesus and no longer warring with sin in your life. You've never lived a day without that war. But it's done. And you can thank your executioner. (laughs) Oh, man. If that sounds crazy, 
If that sounds so strange and absurd and out there that, that you're going, really? That's too crazy. I would, just, I would just suggest to you that that reveals, that reveals how small, how earthbound, how short-sighted our understanding is of a Christian's death for Jesus' sake if we think it's absurd or crazy. That reveals how small our understanding is of our own death as a Christian. Paul got it right. For me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. It's the best. Peter says, arm yourselves for battle. Think the way Jesus thinks. Second, on your note page, don't just know what God says as a way of arming yourself for the battle. Do what he says. Now, if you're wondering, wow, Tim, if all the rest of these take as long as that one took, <laughs> we're going to be here till dinner time. <laughs> I just want to set your mind at ease. It's not going to take us that long. We lingered intentionally on this first point because it's just not how we're wired to think. These other four, we're familiar with these. And so we can move through them much more quickly. These are, there's four more warfare thoughts, more, four more things to arm ourselves with. Peter says, Since therefore Jesus died in the flesh, arm yourselves with his way of thinking, for whoever has died for the love of Jesus is done with sin forever. We, we say amen. And if that's true, if that's true, how can you and I not want to, verse 2, live for the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, no longer for sin, but for the will of God? Do you follow him? He's saying, look, if you know this is the end, freedom from sin, why would you not do everything you could to move in that direction right now? To live for him now to do his will now. Brothers and sisters, we understand that Jesus died to deliver us forever, not only from the power of sin, but the presence of sin in our life, a goal realized only when we step through death's door, having put our faith in Jesus. How can we not be committed to striving hard in that direction, direction for the rest of our time in these bodies? That's his argument. Arm yourself with this truth. Do the will of God. He died to break the power of sin in our lives. Do the will of God. He died to break the power of sin in our lives. Do the will of God. Prior to our salvation, we didn't care about the will of God, did we? We really didn't. It didn't matter. We were pawns in the enemy's hands, but Jesus set us free. He broke the chains of sin. He broke the grip of of Satan upon our lives. We need to know what the will of God is, and then we need to do what? Just do it, to steal a phrase from the Nike company. Just do it. Otherwise, what happens? Brothers and sisters, in this war, we we give the enemy the advantage. We give up hard-won ground that was bought for us by the blood of Jesus if we don't seek to do the will of God and have a desire for that. Of course, our Bibles are filled with dozens of calls to knowing and obeying the will of God. Let's just draw on a couple here for the moment. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with this little story. Do you remember it? Matthew chapter 7, 
Some of the kids in Sunday school might be learning it right now. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, the instruction of God, and what's the next three words? Does, and does them, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. The war came, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I would suggest that, that this is just 1 Peter 4, 2 in story form. It's exactly the same idea. Here's one you might have memorized, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You would know the will of God. What is his good, pleasing, and acceptable will? You would know his will, and then what? You would do it. You would do it. Do the will from a renewed mind that thinks like Jesus thinks. In Ephesians 6, 6, we read, Be bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from where? From a heart that's been changed by faith in Jesus. And, of course, how can we not think of James 1, 22? Be what? Doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so it goes and goes and goes throughout the, 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 the pages of our Bible, the call to know and to do the will of God, to obey. Every time we don't do this, we fail to arm ourselves for the battle. We play right into our enemy's hands. Makes perfect sense. And then if you flip your note page over, this ushers us into a closely related third warfare thought. If we're going to arm ourselves well, we need to say, I've sinned enough and actually mean it when we say it. I've sinned enough. I'm done with that. It's verses 3 and 4. And this is such an earthy, graphic, practical, arming ourselves idea. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices. It's enough for doing what the Gentiles, this is Peter's word for those who don't know Jesus, have never given their life to him, don't care about him. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this or concerning all of this sin, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They engage you in the war because you're not going with them. Here's Peter's words. They would serve these first century persecuted Christians, I think in a couple of ways. First, there's a reminder to them of what their lives were like before they knew Jesus, right? He's reminding them, hey, this is where you were. These six things that he mentions in verse 3 are just the tip of an iceberg of sin and all the places that sin can take a person. And Peter doesn't hesitate to say, hey, this was you, brothers and sisters, before the Lord of glory broke into your life. This was you. 
Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he calls all of this junk he lists out here, he calls it a futile way of life, an empty way of living. Here he calls it a life flooded with debauchery. Now, debauchery is not a word that I use every day. (laughs) Do you? No, no, we don't. What does it mean? It simply means a condition of sinning in which a person thinks about very little else. Debauchery. The person who doesn't care about their health, their reputation, the, the, the impact of their, of their activities on their families, their impact upon what this does to God if he's in the, if he's in the world. And they don't care about how it impacts their character. All they want to do is what they want to do and indulge their desires and their passions. It's being so blinded to sin that you think you're stepping into a sparkling, inviting hot tub, but you're actually entering into a septic tank. You just don't know it. That's how blinded the sin has made you. Debauchery. Flooded with debauchery. Peter says, brothers and sisters, you were there once. But not anymore. Jesus pulled you out of that place. For the time that is past suffices. It's enough. You did that enough. In other words, you've already had enough of time, enough time there. You've been there. You've done that. Don't stay there for even one second more. Can you hear him? That's, that's arming yourself for the battle. Don't stay in that place where sin dogs your heels and brings you down because that will ev- eventually take you out if you stay in that place. It suffices. You carried out that sin life plenty of, for plenty of time. Be done. Be done. Solomon will write in Proverbs 6.27, You can't take fire into your lap and not get burned. That's the wisest man in the world stating something very obvious, right? You can't take fire into your lap and not get burned. You've you've had enough time with that sin. Be done with it. Move on. Now, this is a timely warning for us, brothers and sisters, but, but my guess is that it is especially timely for some among us who might be in this room today who are playing with fire right now. And I'm just going to make this intensely practical and focus on one thought for just a moment. The research suggests that pornography is eating the church alive. It's eating up the church. Pornography, the the ease with which uh, it can be accessed on the Internet and on the phone today is eating many Christians alive, teens and adults, and not just guys, not just guys. This addictive pornography, it's well documented, and it's, it's just like a drug user who's so consumed with his drugs that he has to have more and more and more, and it has to be more and more powerful in order to get the same effect. Pornography works the same way. It's incredibly dangerous, and it's eating the church alive. I might be talking to you right now, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
this sin is in your life right now. If this is where the war rages for you, brother, sister, hear what Peter's saying. You've sinned enough. Declare that and actually mean it. Confess that to God and to a trusted Christian friend. And stop playing with fire. It's going to take you out. It's going to destroy you. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians 3, 13, 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brother, sister, there's sin that we need to forget and leave behind. There's somebody around here who loves you enough to want to walk through the battle with you. Let them do that. Arm yourselves. Make a clean break with sin. That's Holy Spirit-inspired warfare advice. And then in verse 5, we get another arming thought for the battle. When the battle's engaged, and, and, this, and in this case, the persecution of the Christian for the sake and love of Jesus is unfolding with fury, and there's no sign of it letting up, it is possible for a Christian warrior to think, man, where is God? Where is the justice in this? I'm a follower of Jesus. But my persecutors, my adversaries, my tormentors, my detractors, they just seem to have their way. They prosper and I suffer. They laugh and I cry. I pray and they party on. They live and we die. Peter knows this is a place where a weary Christian warrior can go. And so he says, verse 5, Brothers and sisters, arm yourselves with this truth. Though the unbelieving malign and persecute and even kill you, they will one day answer to God for what they've done. Verse 5, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. The verb, they will give an account, it's a bookkeeping term. It means to pay back. Peter says that those who live like there's no God and declare war on those who love the Lord Jesus are amassing a sin debt to God that they're going to spend eternity paying off. They're going to be required to pay. They're going to pay. Arm yourself with that truth, Christian, in the war. Romans chapter 12, verses 17, tells you and I how we are to think. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Well, there's going to be times when that's not going to be true. Or be, be possible. You're hated because you love Jesus. Not a thing you can do about that. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Arm yourself with that truth. 
To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Your kindness for his cruelty will pour shame on him. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Leave the avenging of your suffering to me, God says. Leave it with me. The persecutor will not escape. They will be struck speechless before me. They will have no defender. They will have no advocate. And they will be without excuse. I'll take care of it. Leave it to me. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 1 gives a very strong warning, but also an encouragement to you and me engaged in the war. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. Those are scary words. But they're also assuring words. There will be an accounting. Christian, find comfort and protection in that. Arm yourselves with that. And then in verse 6, Peter gives us one more practical arming element to help us in the fight of our lives as he tells us to never forget that God will keep his promise to us. He's going to keep his promise. God has never broken a promise. He's not about to start now, right? Never broken a promise. What's the promise? Verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, this is another one of those tricky verses. Not sure exactly how to understand that. How do I read that? Kind of odd. But here's what Peter's saying. Remember this, you lovers of Jesus who are suffering right now. Remember that those of your brothers and sisters who have died in the cause of Jesus, martyred for the sake of the gospel, the saving truth of Jesus, remember that though they were judged in an earthly way by their persecutors, judged in the flesh and thought only worthy of death, just now, know that they are actually very much alive with their God. He keeps his promise. He keeps his promise. Does that not sound strangely like the words of Jesus from John chapter 11? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes, amen and amen. The one who believes in me never dies. That's the promise of God to a persecuted Christian who dies for their love of Jesus. They never die. And God always keeps his promise. What Peter is saying is that God has promised that the believer who is faithful to the end who dies prematurely at the hands of the persecutor or who, who dies after a long and fruitful life. Either way, the Christian wins. The Christian triumphs. 
the Christian is victorious. Arm yourselves for the battle. Think the way Jesus thinks. Death is no threat to you. (laughs) It's no threat to you. In fact, it only gets you to where you want to be most. Obey. Do the word. Don't just hear it. Make a clean break with that persistent sin. Just say, enough is enough. I'm done. Relax. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. There's going to be an accounting. You can count on that. And stay faithful, knowing that you're going to live, even if you die, for me. Thank you, Jesus. Arm yourselves with these things. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for hopefully using my mouth today for your glory and for the equipping of us to do this thing called the Christian life. We do know we're in a war, and it's a, it's a deadly battle, and we fight it every day. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us everything we need to do this battle. Oh, how we thank you for Jesus, who has won the victory for us. We truly are conquerors. Even now, we know the outcome of the war. Praise be to you. All glory to you, victorious King. May we think like you think and do what you do. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Let's stand together.